This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, here we are once again, episode 24 of the DLR Cast. I'm Steve, joined as always with my good friend and partner in Dave Crime. That didn't sound right at all, but nevertheless, Darren Paltrowitz. What's happening, Darren? How are you, my friend? I am fantastic. And, you know, the Dave Crime, that's just allegations at this point, right? <laughs> Exactly. I'm sure there's a quote in there somewhere. I was just thinking of that video footage you see during Panama. And I know there's a story that I can't think of at the moment where Dave is being uh, dragged out in a towel and cowboy boots with handcuffs handcuffs in front of him. And and is that the picture, too, where if you look closely, there's some dwarf security guards in the background looking very puzzled and confused. So that might be one of the weirdest sentences that have ever come out of my mouth before. But um, (laughs) I'm sure... Are, are you're guilty until you're proven innocent, or is it you're innocent until proven guilty? Whatever it is, we're here for it. Exactly. Well, we got a great interview. I had a blast talking to Doug uh, Doug Broad, of, who wrote the book, the amazing book, my favorite book of this year, even though it came out last year. They just seem a little weird. How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars remade rock and roll. Now, of course, Van Halen and David Lee Roth are not in that title, but we did speak about Dave and Van Halen in the context of the book and that influence and that whole rock yeah. scene in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was a fun and great conversation. And he's a blast. And I give it four stars, two thumbs up, whatever you want. I absolutely love this book. I devoured it because this is all my bailiwick, I guess it would be the word that I'm not sure exactly what means, but I have an idea when it comes to my music oeuvre. Oeuvre? Yeah. Oeuvre? You get what I'm saying. You're the journalist, man. Yeah. Well, whatever it is, I believe that there's four Van Halen references in this book in total. Uh, And on top of that, a lot of the same characters of... Van Halen in the 70s and 80s also played into these bands as well. They not only have mutual friends, but mutual producers and mutual management people. It's it's not like we went totally off script with the Dave and Van Halen stuff. It's all connected. And Doug knew a lot about the connections as well. Yeah. And the book, too, mentions a couple people that were in that orbit of Dave and Van Halen. We won't give it away here. We talk about it in the interview. But suffice to say, if you've been paying attention or you read the book, you know what we're talking about when it comes to a certain person who has made a couple of statements. And some I found out some new info when it comes to Dave's solo career in that. And that's all I'm teasing on that from what I got out of the book and we discussed in the interview. Yeah. Great chat. Great book. Wholeheartedly agree with everything that you said right there, but there, <laughs> for for those who go, this is not a Dave interview. Well, you know, there is some good Van Halen news that we can go over. Absolutely, we sure can. And that is an interview uh, with Alex Van Halen that surfaced this past week. Now it was recorded, it was done back in August before Eddie's death, of course. And I think if I remember, it came out of, it came from an interview from Modern Drummer yeah. magazine. And so we, the there was, we'll get to the quote in one second, but it was, um, it was, uh, it was really the bulk of the interview from what I've seen is that they really talk about the chemistry of the musicians and what, how most people don't know what went on behind. I, I shouldn't say the bulk of the interview from what I've seen from the quotes that have been pulled off this thing all over the net, but the chemistry that, that the band had and how much work they put into it. And of course, uh, David Lee Roth came up in the conversation. Yeah. I would say that a lot of people think that they've read this article based on you know, one summarization, but I'd say there's been at least four stories that have come out 
where I think the sites like Ultimate Classic Rock kind of know, hey, let's not blow it all on one article. So they'll do one article based on you know, four senses that Alex said, and then they'll do another article on another four senses. There was a lot of kind of truth bombs kind of that came out of this. I can't think of Alex Van Halen prior to this giving us a lot of sound bites or a lot of news over the years. I can think of the... 1996, you know, the next time I see David Lee Roth, he better be wearing a cup interview. I remember that. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of Alex quotes over the years. So this is really fresh and interesting. Well, these were big. And let's get into that. Uh, one of the quotes here, Alex said, he said, one of the things that made everything work that we that was that we came from opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Dave was vaudeville. Ed and I were coming from Cream, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. So having that strange chemistry is chemistry is what made it work, oddly enough. But you do need a mediator. Otherwise, we had never gotten anything done. And that's something that we've heard before. We've heard from Dave and other people was that it is it was a volatile but a incredibly creative and fruitful chemistry. And that's because they really did come from opposite ends of the spectrum. And most bands can't make that work. Somehow in 1974 and beyond that magic, that all came together but uh, of course it all came apart too and maybe that was <laughs> maybe the fact that there wasn't always a mediator there but he also mentions here um he said as a drummer alex says he made a point of accepting directions from roth before, ter- before turning his parts into whatever he thought they should be he said if dave came in with a song i re- would respect how they heard it and then it's the old trick keep your friends close and your enemy and it's yeah. closer. And that means, okay, I'll listen to you, but then I'm going to make it mine. And by the end of the process, it will sound nothing like what you hummed me. That is an amazing formula for creativity. And I, I really loved, and I totally get what he said there. Yes. The part, I think it's in that same passage of the interview where he said that Dave, every idea that he brought to the band, it was kind of like, 10% of them were genius, 90% of them were kind of bad, and the 10% were just so amazing that it was worth sifting through the remaining 90%. Now, the math of that actually gives me some questions right there, because obviously he didn't calculate, well, he brought 74 ideas to this, and six of them, and carry the one. Obviously, that didn't happen. But if you look at an album like 1984, which has what, eight songs on it, or is it nine songs? I thought it was nine or ten, but yeah, I know what you're saying. But the intro is just like a keyboard thing. So right. You go, okay, so if Dave brought six great songs to that album, does that mean that he brought 54 things that were good? And if so, where are these 54 things? Because I'd love to hear them. Well, I've never been really good at math, but we do know, of course, that Dave wrote all the lyrics, and that was a huge part of it. And with those lyrics came a melody. And what's interesting is I would bet most of the time, and again, it changed from what he hummed and what maybe he, what I would bet maybe over time he showed them on guitar, different things. But I'm sure mostly it was it was kind of a mel- melody sung out. And Alex's quote was, Dave was much more of a poet. Dave is creative. 90% of it is garbage, but that 10% is fucking worth it. <laughs> That's That really does get me thinking because poets are known to be prolific. And that just gives me hope that there's a lot in the vaults. Going back to maybe November, like right after Eddie had passed, and the archivist was talking about what was on that box set had it come out through Warner and how there was just different lyrics to Hot for Teacher. Entirely different lyrics. So it makes you think, 
has Dave just been writing and writing and writing all these years and just waiting for somebody to go yay or nay and it gets tossed or or what? You know, Dave is so well read and so well informed. I mean, there's I remember seeing hearing something, reading something, what he finishes like a paperback a week or something. I would bet he's got like dozens of notebooks filled with quips and quotes and a couple yeah. stanzas and songs and a bunch of lyrics that just same when you're that creative, you got to get it into some sort of medium. Is it a, is it a little uh, voice recorder on a mini cassette before there was, before you could do it on your cell phone? Was it a notebook? Was it a, clearly was it, surely it was a sketch pad as well that we know from prior interviews with, and we've seen in the artwork with him sketching, having some sketches along with the actual uh, words written down on a piece of paper. But I, I, as a fan of this stuff and as someone who always wants to know what goes on behind the curtain, especially a curtain that is almost impenetrable and as thick right. as Van Halen's, I owe it to myself to read the rest of this interview, to find the rest of this interview in a modern drummer because – uh, as mentioned, we saw in one of the other quotes from the interview is that nobody really knows what went on behind how much work that Alex and Eddie did. And just they everybody thought they knew how that band works and they didn't. Well, that's why an interview like this, especially from someone like Alex, who did so little interviews, is so important. Yeah. I mean, I really want to know from a musical standpoint, like how these songs all got put together. And 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 yeah, granted, we did something. Was there ever a time where, uh, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, Jamie's crying. I had a completely different idea for a drum riff, and then it turned into this. And I, I mean, that's probably not the case, but you know what I'm saying? It could have been, yeah. I mean, who knows? Kind of reminds me like with Kiss with God of Thunder. Well, that was Paul just like you know, doing, there's like a kind of faster paced, almost like a country vibe to it, I think, if I yeah. remember correctly. So, I mean, how did these songs morph into their different, uh, their different current incarnations? Now, that also reminds me of the fact that we've seen, especially since Eddie's death, a bunch of stuff from the early, early days. And some of those songs are very fully realized. And I think part of that is that, and Dave's brought this up in various interviews before. And I was just watching actually the other day, the press conference that they did with the 2007, when they announced the 2007 reunion, famous one where uh, Eddie kissed Dave on the cheek and, yeah. and they were up there and they all looked great. And Eddie said, this band is playing like they've never had before. And Dave's brought this up before is that they worked their asses off. There was nobody as well rehearsed. And I'm sure that was in the early days down in Dave's parents' basement. I mean, yeah. these guys more than did their 10,000 hours. And that's before they even were doing three or four sets a night, doing Earth, Wind and Fire covers and ZZ Top covers, in addition to the stuff that Eddie was seemingly churning out almost on a weekly basis. So I'll take a breath now because I'm very excited about all of this. <laughs> I can't blame you. I don't blame you with any of that. I think there was another quote or two, you know, and I think we're kind of spoiling that that got a lot of attention to it. The part where he was comparing Dave and Sammy with this, and he was basically saying that Dave, you know, the poet stuff, but he was saying that Sammy's just such a great singer. And I yeah. don't know if outwardly heard Alex compliment Sammy Hagar in 20 years yeah his quote was sammy's got a great rhythmic sense and of course that voice and then he followed with dave was much more of a poet that quote that i just mentioned um 
Yeah, I got to find this interview because I re- that's the whole thing. We always want to know what went on behind the scenes there. And to me, the drama and the fighting and the feuding, much of that stuff bubbled up in the public. I stopped giving a shit about that stuff a long time ago. Clearly, a ton of other people on various freaking Facebook groups and everything else, people that are my age still freaking doing, oh, spammy Hagar. Jesus Christ, <laughs> let it go, man. It's that shit I could care less about. It's what it's really about is I want to know the creative process. I want to know because – you know, it reminded me of this. The other day, a great interview with uh, with Getty Lee came out mm-hmm. on Rolling Stone. I don't know if you saw this, RollingStone.com. Yes. And because it's been, uh, what was it, a year ago, a couple weeks ago, was the anniversary of Neil Peart's death. And they really got into, Getty really got into the creative process and how they evolved as a rhythm section and how much they love playing and what that meant for Alex Lifeson. And I mean, it really got, as someone who's barely an amateur musician, but is fascinated by the creative process, I loved that interview. It was just fantastic. It was a really long, in-depth interview about their playing together and, and how things how things evolved and changed from lyric writing to to Neil's fills and what he brought in for a musical element and basis. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing. That's why I devoured the guitar magazines back in the day, because Eddie was really the only voice talking about that. Right. Um, Alex just did not do a lot of interviews. Maybe there's interviews out there. Eddie, of course, Eddie's going to get the bulk of the interviews. I'm sure there's interviews back there, and I probably read them way back in the day of Michael Anthony and bass player. But that's the sort of stuff that, like I said, I could give a shit about the feuding and the arguments. It's always been about the creative process and what went into this stuff, especially when you learn that there's hours and hours and hours worth of tape. And here in this interview that came out this week, Alex kind of confirmed once again that it was them two all the time in the studio. They didn't play with anybody else. They didn't have side gigs. There was no Alex wasn't in the circle or in some other, you know, Brian May Space Force thing or whatever. I mean, it was that was it. Yeah. And and Eddie, had, you could probably count the side projects on one and a half hands, but that was it. It was them two all the time in the studio. And it's that sort of drive and passion that fuels that creativity. I want to know. That's the stuff that's always fascinated me that we have. We've always gotten so little of from the Van Halen and Dave camp. So when Dave talks about how well rehearsed the band has been and 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 what they're doing and even just little snippets like that, that's where my ears really perk up. Yeah, well said. I can't top that one. So all that said, it is a bit of a head scratcher to me as to why Alex would have taped this interview in August July or August and then why it didn't come out until now. Yes, print has a long lead time. But did somebody in the Van Halen camp put the kibosh and go, um, wait on this one. We'll tell you why later. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you would think for just for if you're going to. I mean, the marketing guy in me goes, well, shoot, we're going to get uh, we're going to get this out and say the next issue following Eddie's right. death or at least get it online right away to get those clicks and eyeballs. Um, there's probably some edit- other editorial decisions. Who the hell knows? I'm assuming this is in print as well. I haven't been to yes. my local Barnes and Noble in a minute. <laughs> I'm planning to do that soon to to as I as I always do at least once a month to find like classic rock magazine and and uh, all those great British rock magazines are still published over there um but yeah that's the that's an interesting point is it's just came out the end of january why in the case of dave you remember the cbs news piece that came out uh, for cbs this morning maybe four months ago three four months ago yeah it was after eddie died 
right? came out after Eddie died, but he was clearly talking about the Vegas residency like it was an upcoming thing. So you go, well, CBS sat on this for six months, eight months, nine months. Why? It's a weekly show. Yeah. Are they back backlogged or was it a disaster taping kind of thing or well, I what? get it every week. There might be almost something, especially given the previous occupant in the White House and a pandemic. There could have been always something that bumped you from the news cycle. But, yeah, why were those things held for so long? I thought the Dave thing, the CBS thing was was taped back in August or am I confused? The New York Times thing came out in August. New York Times was in August in the pandemic right. kind of thing. And then the. CBS, he's talking in the interview about how Vegas is the next big thing is all roads lead to Vegas. And obviously he wouldn't be saying that during the pandemic when entertainment at that point was kind of died down and nothing was going on and no one was doing shows. So it's just I think that he did a, a press blitz mid-December, January, something like that before the residency because maybe the hotel – or the promoter was going, uh, your ticket counts. Uh, you're going to do some press now. I don't want to do press. Well, we'll take back the deposit right now if you don't do some press. Okay. Yes, yeah. it is. And hence he did CBS, Mark Marin. He did Wired, or he did some kind of a tech one. He did one where um, I can't think of what it is. Um, they have a press conference, like a five-day festival thing here in New York. Is it Slate? Can't think of what it's called. But the bottom line is, you know, the Dave press clusters kind of come up. I don't think that that CBS was anything more than he taped it in a in a cluster of things, and they sat on it. And then again, this Alex thing, they sat on it. So it makes you wonder: was Alex part of a, a press cluster, or is it just he? He likes drums and he did this one magazine and yeah, why, after 20 years. What was the occasion? Have you read the whole interview? Was there an occasion why they recorded in August? Was it a, you know, an anniversary or something or, but Not then again, it's, but then again, it's, they still sat on it for months. Yeah. I don't know if they were putting out a new drum kit as an anniversary thing. Who, who knows? Yeah. Every now and then you see with some of your favorite artists, they don't do press unless it's, something that they're passionate about. Like Rod Stewart will talk about trains all day long. Right, right. <laughs> but if you went, hey, Rod, we want to talk about music. And no, no, he, he, I'm not available. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, I I wish I had the full news on this. I mean, it's uh, I'm just looking here on on Modern Drummer, uh, moderndrummer.com and just a quick pass. I mean, I. It uh, I just did not get a chance to go run out and try to buy the magazine. Yeah. And and uh, February 2021, the Modern Drummer Festival 2020. I mean, I don't even see Alec. There's nothing about uh, I don't even see magazine features. This is they don't even have they don't even mention the Alex interview. So maybe they have an update of the the website. Which is bizarre. Well, what and, I mean, Neil Peart is on the is on the top banner on this thing, and there's a there is an article about uh, Neil Peart, a fan remembers January 7th, 2021. They don't. I don't think they do a very good job updating their their website. Maybe. Well, we do know something that you and I were talking about off mic. Pulling back the the curtain, that Wolfie is going to be making his TV debut, aside from his Van Halen appearance. Yeah, on, live. On, on, yeah, on Jimmy Kimmel. So it makes you wonder: Is there an insider there on the booking team at Jimmy Kimmel Live that can just get curry favor with the Van Halen camp? 
Yeah, you know, who knows? It's so it's so easy to speculate this stuff and just go down a rabbit hole. But before we go any deeper, let's get to the interview with Doug Broad. Great guy. And, uh, you know, say, save your hate mail for this is not a Dave interview for another episode. <laughs> yeah. Doug is just worth it that much. And let's face it, if you love classic Dave, classic Van Halen, you love Doug's book and what it's talking about, because Hey, if it's about Kiss, a.k.a. Gene Simmons' band, with without whom there would probably be no Van Halen to the scale that we know him, well, hey, think of it that way. Yeah, I love how we all connected. And like I said, the book is called They Just Seem a Little Weird, how Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars remade rock and roll. It was really great talking to this guy, and I absolutely love the book. I certainly learned a lot. Hopefully, I think uh, everybody, I think you all enjoy, uh, will enjoy the interview. Exactly. Thank you so much for listening and hope to have another one of these to you guys in a, in a week or so if we can keep it up. Right on. I want to start this with an extreme, extreme compliment and say you wrote a book about two of my favorite bands ever. Two bands I really liked. Uh, two out of four isn't so bad right there, but maybe the greatest era for two of those bands right there. And it's one of those things where I would have paid a lot of money to learn all the stuff that's in the book, but Hey, the book is the right price here. So thank you for <laughs> writing this book beyond doing this interview. Thank you for, for all that, Steve, you're the one with the good questions here. I, well, I told Doug, you probably dog tagged or dog eared the book with lots well, of questions. Yeah. Well, first off, like I, I, I love the book. I think it's fantastic. In fact, I found parts of it, hilariously funny how you describe the supercut of Paul's uh, the hour long supercut of Paul's raps had me crying. I was laughing so hard. It is, so, and so for those who have read the book who are listening, and I'm sure there's a lot, you'll know what I'm talking about. But so one of the things that the book kind of reminded me of, and that is when I looked at, so I'm 53, I think we're close to the same age group, Doug, in the same older. age frame. Uh, so 57. Okay, so yeah, so we were, I was getting out of high school when you were a couple years already removed. So I really cut my teeth. My first eight track, my first album was at Budokan. Then I later fell into Kiss kind of backwards uh, in the, un in, uh, after they unmasked and all that. But for me, and this is how it kind of relates to Van Halen and, and especially David Lee Roth, is this the DLR cast? And sorry for being so long winded, is that, you know, all these bands peaked just about the same time, right? And then they all, kind of hit the skids very much around the same time, right? 79, Chief, uh, Chief Trick hit their peak, Kiss fell apart with, uh, you know, Music for the Elder, Unmasked, all those changes, Aerosmith uh, hit drugs, Stars, that's a whole other conversation. That's the biggest mystery to me, why they didn't get half as big as those guys, as you posit in the book so effectively. Uh, so, but here's my thing with this, is that the next chapter for fans of those bands very often was Van Halen and David Lee Roth. It seemed to be the next evolution. I just wonder if there was some kind of a competition there as they eclipsed 79, 80 through the mid 80s and were still big when a lot of those other bands came back. I think so, of that fan group, that fan base kind of grew up and moved, moved on to a degree. Yeah, it's funny because you, you, you raise an interesting point. It's around 79, 1980, at least for Kiss, Cheap Trick, and Aerosmith, they all lost a major member. Um, Good point, yeah. You know, uh, Joe Perry was checking out by 79. Um, uh, 
uh, Tom Peterson was leaving the band around 1980. And then you had um, uh, Peter Chris essentially checking out. I mean, he'd been checked out for a while. He, he barely played on Dynasty. He didn't play on Unmasked. Um, so after that, you know, these bands had a very hard time sort of bouncing back. I mean, I, I mentioned in the book at, you know, at their peak, Cheap Trick played um, their biggest show in New York, which was Madison Square Garden in 1980 for the Dream Police tour. And then Tom left shortly thereafter. And they came back the following year and they played Radio City, which is probably a third of the size of the garden. So their fortunes definitely took a hit. Um, I, I hear what you're saying about they, they left kind of a vacuum in a way for another band to um, to sort of blow up. And I, it could be well argued that Van Halen was that band that took advantage of you know these other these three bands sort of not um, generating the kind of interest and sales and uh, audiences that they used to. Yeah, I have kind of what I call the Fast Times Ridgemont High analogy, at least as it fits with two bands, where the famous scene where Damone is trying to sell cheap trick tickets and the girl goes, that's kid stuff. The next sentence, especially I think if it was a guy, would have been like, I'm into Van Halen now. Because you really, I think, Aerosmith I always kind of put aside from that because Cheap Trick and, and Kiss certainly had such a big visual element and and really brought in the younger brought in that younger kids were Aerosmith. My older cousins were into Aerosmith. I mean, you know, we're talking rocks and 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 uh, get your wings and all that era. They always seemed to me just a little bit older skewing and then brought in the younger kids as far as teens and stuff like that. So that was kind of that's kind of my analogy on that is that that was kind of the next step. And of course, that predated what. Van Halen certainly uh, influenced the whole hair metal thing. And that kind of predated the new wave of British heavy metal, which was never really, you know, as far as, as far as who kids were drawing on the backs of their Levi's jean jackets in freshman <laughs> art class, you know, it kind of went from a Kiss logo to Van Halen logo. And then there was always the kind of extreme, the other kids who might put a Judas Priest logo or something on there. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because this is gonna be blasphemous or sacrilegious, but at, at around that time in 79, 80, I was kind of checking out of hard rock to begin with. I mean, I, I had moved on to, to punk and new wave and, and more of those kinds of sounds. So I, even though I liked Van Halen, I, um, I, I didn't really pay much attention beyond the hits, beyond the singles. So um, uh, yeah, I was, more, I, I was getting into the clash and the cars and the pistols and, Dead Kennedys and bands like that. So that was kind of right. where my head was at. So, um, but I still kept up with Cheap Trick. That was the band out of all of these that I kept up with throughout the eighties, bought all the records, um, you know, Kiss. I think every fan falls off the Kiss wagon at some <laughs> point and maybe gets back on. I don't, yes. know, I don't know what the album was for you guys, but for me, it was kind of Dynasty. And then I checked out for many, many years. Yeah, I, I think that's really well said and kind of taking this in a different direction before we come back to it. Whenever somebody writes a book, it's different than an album because sometimes albums sound exactly like the person thinks in their head that they demo out. But when you're writing a book that's so intensive with all these interviews, you maybe didn't wind up with the book that you started with. 
So what I'm curious is when you start this book, was it immediately about the intersection of all these bands or did it start off as say a kiss book or a cheap trick book? No, it's, 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 it's a great question. I, actually, the book is exactly how I had planned it. Um, my proposal was, was the longest thing I'd ever written in my life. The proposal <laughs> uh, that I sent to the publisher, it was uh, 50 pages, like something like 16,000 words. Um, and it was chapter by chapter, pretty much what you see here. I mean, I, I hadn't done it like almost none of the research, but I did a bit of it. And, you know, with the book, my first instinct was to tie these four bands together. And the, the, the launching pad that presented, presented itself to me that was so obvious was the Gene Simmons 1978 solo album on which the band members from three of the other bands perform. So you have Richie Randall from Stars on guitar, you have Joe Perry on guitar, and you have Rick Nielsen playing guitar on this Gene Simmons album. So that was just the kind of the natural like launching pad for this book. And then through, you know, interviews and research, I was able to find a lot of these connections that weren't so obvious. And I dug pretty deep and like in the, in the 60s, it turned out that Cheap Trick's manager, Ken Adamani, before he was even Cheap Trick's manager, um, had business associations with two of the guys from stars before they were even stars. So there are all these like layers that kind of became unpeeled. Um, and yeah, so, so the book pretty much reads how I expected it to. So there wasn't much deviation. It's that, those are some of the things, those are the nuggets that completely blew me away. Like in my mind, up until reading your book, I always equated stars as strictly, and they kind of were, but strictly an East Coast, New York, Casablanca, Kiss related mm -hmm. band. Uh, and Richie Rano, knowing that he's from that area and from New Jersey, that was just been, been in my head for how many years now? But to have that whole, and later I, I realized that looking glass connection, but then to have that whole Midwest connection behind that and then Cheap Trick and Ken Adamanian, I mean, that just was, I was just like, this is some serious detective work. This is great yeah. stuff. I had no it's idea. Funny. It's funny because Cheap Trick, um, sorry, Stars played with uh, Kiss and they played with Aerosmith, but, but they never connected with Cheap Trick. However, Richie Rano's, previous, one of his earlier bands called um, Bungie actually played with Fuse, which was Tom and Rick's band before right. Cheap Trick. So they had this connection back there. So yeah, it was just, it was, I mean, to me, if I'm going to spend two years researching a book, it's got to be something that's going to interest me and yeah. something that, that makes me happy when I finally sort of put it all together. And I was fortunate that, that I was never bored working on this book so over time gene simmons has become my favorite member of kiss because i did a couple of interviews with him in person and he's i found him to be totally unlike how he's portrayed in other words he's he loves to play the character of being this money greedy oriented for lack of a better term just this donald trumpy kind of guy he yeah. likes to do that but when the camera's not on he he's like an uncle uh he's he's kind of that uncle gene kind of character that a lot of people don't see he's not like the howard stern guest that he he portrays so over time i've just been very fascinated with gene because 
there's a smart, inventive guy that knows everything that's going on, but he doesn't like to admit it or publicly show all that. Did your perception of Gene specifically change over time? Because this is such a well-researched book. The first 10 pages alone, I think, will blow most people's minds about the making of Gene's first album. Well, thanks. Yeah. Um, uh, my perception of him has changed over time. Absolutely. I mean, you know, he's been a problematic figure, I, would, I think people would say. I mean, he, <laughs> he's had, you know harassment allegations right put against him and you know i think on with with people from fox news or something a few years ago and you know he he does come off as publicly at least as this kind of dog you know as this kind of like you said this trumpian blowhard but then when i saw his tv show family jewels and i it's funny because i interviewed him for spin uh, 11 years ago and this it was for a uh we were we were a myth like a myth busting issue we were trying to pop all of these rock and roll myths and my rock and roll myth that i tried to pop was that gene simmons was an asshole and i was trying to make the argument that he was not an asshole okay because the, the the book sorry the record asshole had just come out yeah his, his solo album yeah so that was my argument so i interviewed him um for spin in conjunction with that, uh, with that album. And I was telling him how it was refreshing to see his reality show because he comes off as a genuinely nice dad and a good dad and a strict dad. He's raising some really good kids. And I was complimenting him about that. And he was, you know, he obviously accepted the compliments and, and it was a really interesting uh, conversation and I was totally, you know, he's a very charming guy when you interview him. Um, unfortunately for the, you know, this time around, I tried to get him for the book and he didn't want to, for whatever reason, he declined to be interviewed for the book. I think at this point, you know, when he's, if he's going to work on a book or talk to someone writing a book, I think he either wants to get paid or he wants to have some oversight and wants to have, you know, approval over it. So he declined to be interviewed for the book. But um, I definitely see your point. He, he certainly has kind of evolved. Um, he could see him evolving even now. I mean, I, I, I follow him on Twitter and during the whole Trump administration, he was pretty rah-rah for Donald Trump. And now he's definitely um, been very kind of measured middle of the road and um, he seems to be, you know, supporting Biden at this juncture, which is commendable, I'd say. I, I think he's gotten better through, I'd say, probably the last 10 or 11 years. Certainly being married has helped, but it, to be able to kind of read the room and read the temperature a little bit better. If ever there was a guy I thought would just be waylaid by so many Me Too accusations, and granted, a couple of them did come out. The, I mean, you, that scrapbook he has is infamous. I mean, you know, he was never... he. I mean, there's just reams of videos on YouTube of him just, you know, not just being very misogynistic on talk shows and stuff. And he really was what, kind of one of the last guys, I think. And I think you put David Lee Roth up there too, but in a less misogynistic way. But one of those, one of the last guys to kind of wave that rock star sort of bigger than life banner. And I think for a lot of folks, but especially Gene, 
the internet had a hand in doing things, mellowing, of course, over, over time, and social media as well, where you're just going to kind of see behind the veil and people can tell when you go, yeah, I think that's bullshit, <laughs> you know? And I think he, he, to his credit, I think he's definitely evolved and, and, and read it much, you know, it's definitely, like I said, read the, reads the room a bit better. Uh, but 15 years ago, I would have been like, There's, <laughs> it wasn't like that, was it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So when you have to dig in like you did for this book and really, really, really go in depth, you said two years of your life to basically researching this kind of book. Some people would kind of go, well, um, I did that and I never want to hear Kiss ever again. Uh, that, that was too much kiss. Then other people might go, wow, I learned so many new things that I previously didn't know. I'm an even bigger fan. Which one are you closer towards at this point in time? My wife is the first. She's like, I've heard enough of kiss. I don't want to, I, I don't want you ever to play that music in the house again. I'm, I'm the second. I actually, you know, when I mentioned earlier that I kind of checked out of kiss, um, you know, I, th throughout the eighties when they took the makeup off and, you know, I knew the hits, Heaven's on Fire and right. uh, All Night and Let's Put the X Inside. I mean, I knew those hits, the singles, and I liked them. I kind of, I didn't buy the records at that point. But then I kind of got back into them when they reunited in 70, sorry, in 96. And they toured again with, with Ace and, and Peter. Um, and then I liked the records that came out after, um, Sonic Boom and Monster. But same here. Writing, yeah, but writing this book, I went back to records that I didn't really pay attention to at the time, and I found a lot to like. I mean, Revenge, for instance, I think is a spectacular Kiss record that I kind of ignored. I even found a lot to like with Unmasked, um, which was kind of their power pop play, mm -hmm. and um, also Carnival of Souls, which is their kind of grunge play, yes. has some good songs on it, or interesting songs. I still can't get with The Elder, though. That's that's one, that record is, is I can't, it's impenetrable to me. I just can't get it. But, um, you know, there's a lot to like in the, in the, the, the hair metal days of Kiss. I just, it, it took, it took writing this book to find it for me. I, I've heard you mention this on other podcasts and you bring it up in the book and I'm totally with you. I, every time I look at you from revenge is an amazing ballad. It should have been a hit. Some, somebody in Nashville needs to take that and re-record it. And you, that's the kind of song that should be a huge hit for a country artist. And it, You're right. bums, I mean, that, that, that song's amazing. One thing that I watched a couple of times that I think is just a great show is when they did the MTV unplugged mm -hmm. um, with both, their current band and with the with with Peter and Ace. I mean, that's just it's just an amazing um, piece of you know performance, and they do that song acoustically, and it's just wonderful. And also, you know, I I really I love Forever, which is another one of their power ballads. I mean, I they did some really good ballads. Kiss. I mean, obviously, Beth was there was sort of it sort of put them on the way, but mm -hmm. um, they followed up with some really good ones. Yeah. At the same, the other thing too is one last thing on Kiss. Well, there's never a last thing on Kiss, but <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I for I didn't make the connection mentally, but totally hear that Shandy is is pure yacht rock. I mean, that could, should have been you know that's you nailed it perfectly, man. Yeah. And I, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I do like that song a lot. And I actually love Unmasked, but yeah, that's yacht rock. That's right up there with you know anything that got on 
top 40 radio back then that, that Michael McDonald probably sang backup vocals on. So, and you know what, if, if, Firefall or Ambrosia recorded <laughs> yes. that song. I might like it, but to me, it just it, uh, that's probably my least favorite Kiss song ever. So. Well, he nailed it perfectly. <laughs> yeah. So what, what I was going to say, get, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Darren. I was just going to say, you picked four bands who had, as Steve pointed out earlier, that initial fame, then it dwindled a bit. And then there was kind of a renaissance where, uh, not unfortunately, not in the case of stars, but Cheap Trick became cool to the next generation or two when, you know, Letters to Cleo is covering I Want You to Want Me and Green Day's doing Surrender. So they had that wave. Aerosmith is arguably bigger than they ever were in the 70s based on the, the late 80s, early 90s, you know, series of records right there. And Kiss obviously you know 1976 dollars are valued differently than 1996 dollars but arguably their biggest tour ever would have been that first reunion tour and then the dollars and the grosses since then have been as huge as ever so it's interesting that they all had that you know low and then a comeback even bigger than ever so I wouldn't have really thought about that until you grouped these bands all together. So again, kudos to you for doing all that. Now back to Steve, tag back in. <laughs> well, I was gonna, you bring it up too, that those lows were really low for those bands. I mean, especially Kiss and especially Cheap Trick. I mean, the early eighties, uh, early to mid eighties. I mean, Kiss did come back really big with Lick It Up, but I mean, by Crazy Nights and, and uh, the Crazy Nights tour, I mean, they were doing half-filled houses again. So. Yeah. Um, it, it was, I think hindsight's always twenty twenty. people look back and you have fond memories that I went to that show. I know it was sold out. Um, I, I like to think the new Avon Coliseum crazy night show that I saw back then was sold out. It probably wasn't, but it, I don't think people necessarily realize how close some of those bands were to just, and Aerosmith for different reasons, but just for, as far as just falling apart and, you know, never having that comeback, at least at that time. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, Cheap Trick, I've seen Cheap Trick probably around 50 times. And, Same um, here. <laughs> you know, I saw them for the first time in 1980 at the Garden. It was during Green Police. And then um, I saw them again at the Garden uh, opening for Robert Plant when they were, when they had their biggest single, when they had The Flame. That was the number one song for them. Um, then I saw them throughout the 90s and throughout the, the 2000s and 2010s and now into hopefully into the 2020s. Um, but when I saw them in the mid 90s, I mean, they were that was a really rough time for them. Mm -hmm. And I would see them play places like I don't know if you guys remember Tramps in oh, Manhattan, yeah. which which basically it was a it was a big nightclub that held like 500 people max. So. I mean, seeing this band that was at one point playing the garden for 16,000 people playing a 500 capacity club in Manhattan. I mean, it's remarkable. Um, they were great shows, but it was a really rough time for them. And, and in the book, you know, Bunny Carlos talks about how rough it really was. I mean, they were losing their ass year after year and they just couldn't, you know, they couldn't make any money. 
and and they were out on the road. I mean, 270 dates a year. I mean, just insane touring that they did and and state fairs and I mean, just you name it, everything. Um, those guys were out of all those bands were probably the biggest road warriors. Oh, wow. I, most bands, by far than those other bands, as far as how much road work they did and just and to do all that and just barely break even <laughs> as some of those years has got to be just heartbreaking. I did some really, really nerdy research like uh, three, four months ago where because of my work doing investigations on things, I was looking at the cheap trick lawsuits related to Bunny Carlos and what was being alleged with that and their former management. And one of the things that they were trying to say was how just how low the business had gotten in the 90s. And it was something like they were down to $6,000 guarantees per night. And uh, how all of their equipment was pretty much charged on a credit card by their manager. And of course, you know, nobody wants that kind of out there, but everything becomes public record in a court kind of thing. So when you point out a venue like Tramps, which I saw a few shows there, I saw Super Drag and I saw the Candy Butchers, but it was, it was a really small time kind of venue. And it's kind of amazing that they, yeah, the garden down to Tramps, a few years after Tramps, they were doing like residency kind of things at Irving Plaza in New York City, which holds 1,100 people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. People. The first three albums. I was at those shows. They yeah. were amazing. And that's kind of where you can kind of, t as far as a resurgence, that second half really started after the Red Ant album. Yeah. And yeah. Tom in particular, I just sober and great. And I mean, just from there on out, it's been fantastic as as a hardcore fan the shows have always been great the set lists have been amazing and it's kudos for them for for putting that all back together somehow so the the tie-in that i was about to give unrelated to cheap tricks <laughs> downfall which hey one of my favorite groups ever is kiss cheap trick aerosmith and van halen all in the mid 80s all had the offstage side stage keyboard player oh that's a good point not every band did in that era. Uh, Motley Crue, while they used a lot of keyboards and maybe were playing the tracks, no side stage keyboard player I can think of. But that's that I can think of. Um, Ted Templeman did uh, Woke Up With The Monsters, you pointed out to me, Steve. And he did, did he do Done With Mirrors by Arrow? He did Done With Done yeah. with Mirrors, yeah. And he was supposed to do the follow-up as you have it in the book. He was supposed to do the follow-up to Dave's Eat Him and Smile record. And uh, I'm uh, was supposed to do that and said no to Aerosmith, if I remember correctly, to doing what became permanent vacation. Well, yeah, so um, he was supposed, well, he, had, he says that Aerosmith asked him to do the follow-up to Done With Mirrors and Dave, Dave apparently wanted him for the follow-up to Eat Him and Smile. And then Dave said, no, I don't want you. And then Ted said, but I just gave up Aerosmith to do this. <laughs> yeah. And Ted, Ted was Ted was a very interesting interview. He was he was, he was a lot of fun and and very revealing. And and one thing that he told me that that was kind of shocking to me is is you know he he produced uh, Done with Mirrors and he produced uh, Woke Up with a Monster for Cheap Trick, and he said he did a poor job on both of those albums. He admits that he got it wrong that he couldn't quite get the sounds that he wanted. Um, he didn't like some of the songwriting Cheap Trick was doing for Woke Up With A Monster and he told them and they were like, oh, we don't care, <laughs> this is our album. 
So, you know, it's very interesting how um, a producer of his stature will, will admit, I kind of, I screwed up on these two records. And um, that was kind of a, kind of a stunning uh, admission to me. Yeah, that was really, that was really interesting. And I still, I remember at the time thinking it was, I always, in my head, I just had him for so long, especially when I was that age as this is the Van Halen guy, this is the David Lee Roth guy. So I, I was really curious to see what he would bring to the table as I, as I love Aerosmith. And I like Done With Mirrors and a huge, I'm a huge Cheap Trick fan. I really like Woke Over the Monster, but the, the, the piece I was missing for both of those that I don't think we're ever missing with Van Halen and certainly so many of other t albums that he produced really was like he mentions, I, I think the songs, I don't think the, the songs were just for either band where they, those bands were at the time were really fully, I just don't think the songs are that great on some of the songs on there just on both those albums were just not necessarily a material. Yeah, and it's funny because even Rick Nielsen admits for Woke Up With A Monster, I mean, that was their first album, not on Epic. It was their first right. album, Warner Brothers. And um, he even admitted in an interview, it's like, I see this as our second act. This is the, the second half of our career. Um, it's a good cheap trick record. It's not a great cheap trick, cheap trick record. Maybe the next one will be a cheap, great cheap trick record. Sure enough, the next one, in 97, which was the Red Ant record, that was a great Cheap Trick record. So uh, he was right about that. Um, but no, I, I mean, I, I like I like some of the stuff on Woke Up With A Monster. I, I don't like a lot of it, but um, I don't think it's, it's, it's one of my least favorite of all their records. But, you know, the, on every Cheap Trick record, even a record that's so maligned like The Doctor, <laughs> there are great songs on these records. It's just a function of like how they're produced, how they try to keep up with the times, with the, you know, in terms of production tricks. And I don't know, uh, that, Woke Up With A Monster just didn't work for me, but uh, I know a lot of people like that record. That was the interesting thing when we compare time periods and that is in bringing it back around to David Lee Roth and Van Halen, because we are the DLR cast, but I look at, uh, in particular, Kiss and Cheap Trick, and especially Kiss, they were chasing trends during yeah. the 80s before they kind of found it. Less so Aerosmith. Aerosmith, to me, permanent vacation, a lot of outside writers. Pump, to me, was a lot. As, as that comeback kind of got into gear, each of those records sounded a bit more. It didn't sound too far away from what original Aerosmith was. Cheap Trick, if you're a fan, had to be bewildering because... Those records with Tom Werman, there was a natural evolution. All of a sudden, there's All Shook Up, which I love, which is sounds amazing, but doesn't sound like the other ones. And put aside the songwriting. And then you have One on One, which is a completely different sound. And then you have, of course, Kiss going just <laughs> going somewhat disco. Uh, I love Dynasty. Throwing everybody a, a weird curveball with The Elder. I mean, so- Come on, was, I got to pause you there. Whole family <laughs> rapping on all hell's breaking loose. <laughs> I mean, every trend possible. But, but that's what I'm getting at. Is that I, I think there was two bands out of when we put them all together in that time period. Yeah. Where I mean, certainly through the '80s, Van Halen didn't need to chase trends. I mean, they they stuck to what they did and kept evolving. And then was a complete difference with Sammy. A big difference, obviously, with Sammy Hagar in there. But Kiss in particular was chasing trends style-wise, musically. They were looking for the next Eddie Van Halen, for goodness sakes. I mean, it was yeah. a revolving door as far as, you know, Mark Norton, uh, Mark St. John on on um, Animalize, that 
was <laughs> are on most of Animalize. I mean, that was them trying to chase uh, guys doing the hammer-ons and, and the speed guitars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny, you know, um, with, with Cheap Trick, I kind of feel like, and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of been said that they kind of lost their way in the 80s and they, 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 they didn't have this consistency anymore. They kind of lost confidence. And I think they relied a little too much on producers to hold, hold their hands. I mean, you know, they went from George Martin, who they hoped to get like a Beatlesy sound out of, and they did on that record. But then they went to Roy Thomas Baker, who was having some success with, who was the having cars. some success with the cars. Yeah. And he just made them sound kind of loud and icy. Yeah. And then they went to Todd Rundgren, who, you know, I, as much as I love Todd Rundgren, I think, and that record has some of their best songwriting on it. It just sounds yeah. very thin. Next position, mm -hmm. please. It has like a thin kind of, weedy sound that that I don't think serves the songs as well as they sh should be served um but then they went off you know they they went back to they, they went back to Jack Douglas they um they went to Tony Platt who did the um uh, the doctor, doctor record and then they went to Richie Zito who was supposedly you know going to breathe fresh life into the band and and give him hits and he gave him one big hit but the rest of those records are are, are, are up for debate. Yeah. <laughs> so some of the stuff on those records is, is their worst stuff. And they admit it, they, you know, they went kicking and screaming into some of those, those songs. I think it certainly has to be tough when you get to a certain level where what previously got you to where you were at isn't necessarily working anymore. I mean, that's gotta be pretty scary. Um, I look in the case of, of Aerosmith where uh, there was, it was obviously the drugs and the alcohol took such a big, big, I think, you know, a big toll, but they seem to really come back in such a big way from a, in my, to my years, as far as from a songwriting standpoint, where it wasn't all totally based on outside songwriters. It wasn't just on the producer du jour. I mean, if that makes sense. Well, one of the things I, I try to point out in the book, I, I don't know, it might be a little subtle, but um, you know, with with Dynasty, uh, Paul collaborated with Desmond Child and they created I Was Made For Loving You, which was a huge hit for Kiss. Yeah. Um, and then um, uh, Paul was asked by uh, Bon Jovi's management if he would collaborate with the band to write some songs for their next record at the time. And Paul recommended Desmond instead. So Desmond worked with Bon Jovi and had these huge hits with Bon Jovi and put Bon Jovi on the map. And then when it came time uh, to sort of reinvent Aerosmith, John Kalodner, who was overseeing the band, he went to Desmond on the strength of his work with all these other bands, including Bon Jovi, to help resuscitate some of the songwriting in Aerosmith. And he helped with Dude Looks, you know, Dude Looks Like a Lady and all these right. other big songs, Angel. And he collaborated with Aerosmith on all these huge songs. So you could essentially blame Paul Stanley for giving Aerosmith their second win. In a way, <laughs> make that connection. That's true. So, and Paul yeah. was originally slated to produce uh, Appetite for Destruction or the album that became that, but had like a falling out of sorts with that. 
I think he was asked to do the first Poison album, or at least he had an early friendship with Poison. They brought him out on stage once or twice. It makes you wonder in a way if Paul Stanley is the undercredited A&R guy, because everyone thinks of Gene as the A&R guy because he's had a few record label imprints and he produced some of the bands like Keel and did you can Cobra? Yep. Well, uh, he would had it on the label, I think, he, but he, he didn't, he had uh, black and blue warlock. Yeah. Um, what's it? Yo, uh, the loud house of Wars. Yeah. he put out. Um, yeah. And they were managed by Ken Adamati, who was cheap tricks manager. So there's a right. lot of connections in the, um, the back room as well. So of course, when it comes to gene discovering and, a and R and that sort of thing. I mean, it all goes back to Van Halen. I mean, that was the first thing he really tried to champion and brought. I mean, he brought them to New York. They recorded those demos, and I think as I think you put in the book, Neil Bogart passed on it. Well, and, it, was, uh, it was Bill O'Coin. So Bill O'Coin, so yeah, sorry. So yeah, it's funny because um, yeah. So Gene discovered Van Halen. Um, he was told, from what I understand, he was told that he needed needed to see this band in L.A. and he saw them. And I think it was Jackie Fox of the Runaways told me that she was with him that night as well. I think a couple of the Runaways were with him um, to see Van Halen. And um, when he, he loved them and then he tried to bring them to Bill O'Coin and he actually, Bill O'Coin, I think flew them in from LA to perform for him in New York. And he didn't see it. He just didn't get it. Like he, didn't, he didn't see stardom. He didn't hear stardom. Um, and he regretted it. I've, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've heard interviews with Bill, you know, after all of this, and and he's like, I, I just missed that one. Um, and he thinks that the reason why he missed it was he took them out of their element. He said he said he should have flown to L.A. to have seen them in a club rather than schlep them to New York and take them out of their element. He just didn't see it. Yeah, it's interesting to look at back at Van Halen and compare those other bands. They really didn't tour outside of the West Coast. They weren't humping it in a van, you know, for two or three years, hitting every podunk town in the Midwest and the South and everything. And I mean, Kiss were road warriors in the beginning. I mean, Canada and all through the U.S. And of course, as mentioned before, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith did their road work. And it comes back around to what I was thinking, too. One of the things you brought up in the book. And on a side note, I want to thank you for reminding me that I really needed to get into stars much more. And I still kick myself because I read about stars in Cream magazine. I used to get cream all the time. I remember that logo distinctly for whatever reason, primarily, well, probably primarily because of radio, they just didn't get on my radar like they should have. And that's a big miss on my part. Yeah. That was the same with me. And I've been a couple of interviews have asked me about them and, and um, I didn't pay attention to that to them either in the seventies. Um, I read the same magazines and I listened to the radio and they, they were never on the radio. It wasn't until um, 2004, 2005, Ryko Disc re-released all their material on CD. When I, that's when I actually first heard them and I really liked them. Um, and then I started seeing them. They did, a lot of, they did a lot of shows in New Jersey and a couple in New York that I saw. And they were great. So that's, I, I, I sort of came late to the stars party, even though I knew about them, I just, I, I'd never heard them. And I just wanted to bring up one other thing that I, that I discovered while researching the book that I, I had never known. I, I was doing a, a do, I did a, a small bit about, um, about rock and roll high school and about how mm. cheap trick were originally considered for, for that movie, part. which eventually yeah. went to the Ramones. 
But two of the other bands, two new bands that were being considered at the time as well, were two Warner Brothers acts that had just been signed and were brand new. And those were Devo and Van Halen. So Van Halen was considered for rock and roll high school, but the, the director, Alan Arkish, told me that, that um, Devo was too much, they were too Devo. They wouldn't work for this movie. They were too <laughs> of their own thing. Um, but he said he, he, the reputation that Van Halen already had was, was that they were nuts and they were wild. So he didn't <laughs> want to have to deal with that. <laughs> that makes sense to me. And something, uh, you, you talked about how you kind of knew where the, the book was going when you started helming it, when you came up the concept, your 50 page pitch. I'm surprised that Angel wasn't the fourth band rather than Stars, because Steve, would you say that Angel is almost as synonymous with, with Kiss as Stars is? Yeah, yeah, I think maybe more so because it was that whole black and white thing, but Angel, to best of my knowledge, wasn't around as long as Stars was, correct? And really didn't have that pedigree. I mean, it was, they seemed to just come and go fairly quickly. Was it two albums on Casablanca? No, they had, they had like four albums. Did they have, did the they thing, have four? Okay. Yeah, the thing about them is that I hear what you're saying and I, to be honest with you, I, I don't like them as much as I like these other four bands, so I didn't want to have yeah. to do the work. But it works better. It works best with four. <laughs> yeah, but I'll tell you this. I mean, you know, the the Gene Simmons record was was such a organic, natural way to tell this story, and you know, Angel did have some really intense connections because they had connections to Aerosmith. They had connections to to. Um, to kiss not so much with cheap trick um so that was one thing that was kind of a, a little fuzzy but with stars stars had so many connections i mean they had jack yeah. douglas produced two of their records jack douglas produced aerosmith he produced cheap trick he was asked to produce a kiss record which he which never happened um and they opened for aerosmith stars opened for aerosmith extensively in the 70s so they were a more to me a more natural fit I mean a lot of people have asked me like, why not Angel why not Ted Nugent why not Rush um first of all Ted Nugent I don't I just don't like um and Rush I don't like either so and Rush were an American and I wanted to keep this to a you know American hard rock bands who actually had this sort of uh fraternity that that they that they they worked together and they had a similar vibe on stage i mean rush were their own thing as well so right well certainly the the aha moment right away and one of those ones where i just went of course is that connection to the gene solo album i mean yeah. there's there's no better way to really uh to kind of launch it so to speak and and i'm with you i I don't know if you, if you don't necessarily like the band, I don't know how you to even make that connection, especially if it's something that you grew up with and really enjoyed at the time, that's where you want to go. But it's funny just to get back to Angel for a second. So before um, the pandemic hit, stars were about to go out on tour with Angel and open for Angel. They had done that the previous year and I had seen a couple of those shows with stars opening for Angel in New York. And I have to say, Angel were spectacular. Another band I didn't really care about until I started, you know, researching this book and playing their music. Um, 
but they were really good. There's only two original members in the band now, but they've got really good support and they yeah. sound great. And, and stars sounded great. In fact, all of the bands that I cover in the book, you know, Kiss were um, out on tour doing their end of the road tour uh, before pandemic struck. Um, uh, Cheap Trick were about to tour with Rod Stewart and uh, Aerosmith were in the middle of their, their Vegas residency. So it's like, to me, it's really refreshing to see these bands of, you know, featuring 70 year old guys going out there and, and playing constantly. So still getting it done. Yeah. Everyone having a great third act, if, if you want to call it a third act. Yeah. I just did. <laughs> so what's what's next as far as uh, maybe on the rock horizon for you? Uh, that's a good question. I, you know, <laughs> I, I have a few book ideas. I'm trying to figure out which one is A, going to pay me the most <laughs> and B, is going to, um, you know, be the the best use of my time so um yeah only only one actually is music related so we'll see i'm not quite sure what it's going to be yet but uh we'll see. I'm, I'm super biased and uh, not only as a fan but someone who works in publishing now is that uh cheap trick is horribly underpublished i mean just there was uh reputation is a fragile thing which came out in the late 90s which i mean there's been so much more since then uh, certainly I don't think there's, you can still probably mine stuff about Kiss and, and Aerosmith, I'm sure. And, uh, and I'm, I often wonder if there was, if there's a book somewhere about those bands, those kind of B-level bands that almost like a stars and like an angel, or um, there's so many bands out there that just are begging people to discover, but the fans know who they are. But um, not that I'm any influence at all, but I, I'm waving the flag for uh, somebody to write just the big definitive, somewhat authorized cheap trick bio. You know, there's so much more has gone on since then. I learned so much about, I mean, just from, you know, the talk, from what you were mentioning before about Bunny talking about those tours in the 90s and everything, where it's just, I mean, they're a band that's also been very, uh, you don't know a lot about what goes on personally with those folks that, that, or, or what went on before. Yeah, that, that was you make an excellent point. I mean, my book is not the definitive cheap trick story. I mean, there is a story out there and it's yet to be written. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to get as much fresh stuff as I could in the book. Um, you know, I spent five, something like five hours with Bunny Carlos um, at his drum barn in Illinois. <laughs> He's got this huge barn next to his house where he yeah. keeps all his equipment and all his memorabilia. And it was just, it was so much fun. And um, so he was, he was great and he was really honest with me. And I have a ton of material that I wasn't able to use for the book. And then I, I got uh, a bunch of hours with, uh, with Rick Nielsen on the phone for the book. Um, wasn't able to get Tom and Robin. They declined to, to, to be in the book, unfortunately. But no, there's, there's definitely a story there. I mean, you know, I, I give, in some cases, the, the broad strokes in the later years. But um, yeah, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot that's not there. And, and I kind of leave out much of the, the stuff they've done in the past 10 years when they've had um, Dax Nielsen, uh, Rick's son, playing drums with them. Right. So. Yeah, there's a there's a lot and there's there's new music imminently from cheap trick this and thursday a, a new single drop and by the time this drops uh, this episode drops people have heard it i know there was a little snippet online so that's I, I, one I, th heard, 
I've heard the whole album. It's it's, oh. really, good. it's I, really good. So I love the I love the last two. I mean, I'm one of these guys that uh, I whether it's Kiss, like you mentioned, Sonic Boom and Monster. I mean, Aerosmith in particular as well. I always want to hear what bands are up to now. What they're what what they're doing. I've heard the hits a million times. I'll always love them and never not listen to them, but I would much rather hear something newer, see where they're at now from an artistic and musical standpoint. I, I so get so excited for new music from my favorite bands, veteran quote unquote veteran bands. I'm the same way. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, people, people don't like that last Aerosmith record, the music from another dimension. That Jack Douglas think, did, yeah. There's some really good stuff. I mean, the album's way too long. There's like 17 or 18 tracks on it, but but there's some really good stuff on it. Um, and Cheap Trick have been remarkably consistent. Their last few records have been really good. I mean, there was some patchy stuff, you know, in the the early the early aughts, I think. I mean, but they they release they they release so much material since you know, they kind of came back in the 90s. I mean, they've been releasing like an album every year, every two years for a while. So um, yeah, so, so the new record is, is, is strong. I mean, is it, a, is it a classic Cheap Trick record? I haven't heard it enough yet, but I doubt it. But it's a really good Cheap Trick record. And I think that's what we should be happy to have at this point, so. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Absolutely. I can't thank Doug enough for his time. Do we want to throw one quick Roth question at him? <laughs> Please do. Actually, I, well, I was wondering, because you were with Spin, with Spin. I mean, did you, have you ever interviewed David Lee or any of any Van Halen alumni? Or No, I, no, I was at Spin from uh, 2003 to 2011. Most of what we covered at that point was alternative rock right you know we did a lot of yeah yeah yeahs and the strokes and interpol and the hives and the vines and bands like that um we you know, we we made room for 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 gene simmons and the darkness and some of the you know some of the those kinds of acts but um yeah i never had the opportunity to to interview van halen i i would i would love to i mean i find them even though I'm, I'm not a huge fan, I just find them to be a fascinating band. And, and one other connection um, that Van Halen has in my book is um, at one point in this, or a couple of points in the 70s, um, Michael Lee Smith from Stars and Steven Tyler had dated this woman named Valerie Kendall, who ended up marrying Alex Van Halen. Um, and was Alex's, I believe it was his first wife. I'm not sure, but uh, they're no longer, they're no longer married. But so there's a, just a lot of tie-ins with Van Halen as well. With all those bands, it's, there's maybe three degrees of separation. <laughs> Certainly for the four in your book, there's one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's pretty amazing. The night that Gene Simmons saw Van Halen, uh, wasn't his date B.B. Buell? Is that the legend? I don't know. I, I think it was. And okay. that was the mother of Liv Tyler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh. We spent 10 more minutes. We can start talking about the Todd Rundgren connection there, but I, let's not, there's, let's not throw any more dirt on this or anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I think we're all big Rundgren fans as well. I love next position, please myself, but <laughs> Doug, I, this, 
this is going to be a hard book for anyone to top for my favorite book of 2021. So to me, it's a 2021 book, even if you started it in what, 2018, 2019? 2018, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's my 2021 book. I, I challenge anyone to write a better book about rock oh, this year. It. That's all I can say. So I can't thank you enough. Steve, you got anything else before we let Doug get on with his day? I was so looking forward to this because like I mentioned, I, I absolutely love the book. I, I read it all in about four and a half days. I mean, it's just, it's everything. I The reviews have been fantastic on it. Congratulations. And I absolutely love it. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Same here. Had a, had a ball. And the That's royalty fine. checks for my citation of my Gene Simmons interview, you can send that to my <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah>. For that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Thanks really keep up the greatness there.